Hey there, welcome to Pickled Parables. This podcast is presented by Parable Ministries as a Bible teaching resource. Thank you for joining us. Pickled Parables is a podcast about taking in and living out the Bible. Here we will study, contemplate, and testify to the Bible's incredible teachings and how it leads us to live better lives. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. We hope today's message finds you well. Hello there, everyone. My name's Michael Rogers. I'm not Jesse, but I am grateful to Jesse for having me back on here and sharing a little bit of what's been on my mind the last couple months. Lately, what I've been thinking about a lot is what it means to be a good husband. I got married roughly three months ago, depending on when this recording releases. Um, It's super exciting, but I've been thinking a lot about before and after the wedding, what it means to be a good husband, a godly husband, um, just a good man even. So today what I'll be talking about is manhood. I'm not going to talk about being a husband because I think that you should probably be married for longer than three months before you start teaching people how to be a good husband. Just my opinion. I didn't find that in the Bible, but just throwing that out there. I will also say that since I am not the most experienced man in the world, being only 24 years old after all, I'm not going to try to be super nuanced or philosophical with it or try to answer every possible question about manhood under the sun. But I do want to... see if we can't figure out what God created us to be, what he created us to do. Uh, Basically, just answer the question, how do we as men glorify God? Like Everyone was created to glorify God. Male, female, everything was created to glorify God. All creation. So how do we as men do that specifically? Now, Most studies, when they talk about biblical manhood, usually they focus on studying a person in the Bible. Usually it's David or Moses or even Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're actually going to study Adam, like the original Adam in creation. He's not exactly the first person you probably think of when you think of biblical role models for manhood especially given his track record of literally being responsible for all the sin in the world. But I was talking to a friend of mine a couple months ago, and he was talking about fathers and fatherlessness. And in his studies of what men and fathers are supposed to be, he looked at Adam and he asked the question, well, what were we originally created to be? What was it like before sin? What did God create us to be and to do? We're not going to look at fatherhood today, but we will look at what God originally created us to do, perhaps more at a more basic fundamental level than fatherhood. And our guiding question is going to be, how was man created to glorify God? And we'll use Adam and God's purposes for him to answer that question, along with his failures, and see what we can learn from those too. And we'll start by examining Genesis 2, 
verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So how was man created to glorify God? Number one, first and foremost, man was created to have a relationship with God. Nothing else matters but this. God commanded Adam. God spoke with Adam. When Adam and Eve sinned, they hid. They were ashamed. You wouldn't be ashamed if you didn't have a relationship with someone. They disappointed God. They sinned against him, and so they hid. That's an indicator of a fellowship, of a relationship. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they broke that. They broke that relationship. In fact, all of redemptive history is about God restoring that fellowship with all people. Jesus talks about in John fifteen twenty three that if anyone loves him, he and his father are going to love him, and they will come to him and make their home with him. That's a reunification. That's fellowship restored. In Revelation 21, after Satan is defeated, after evil is defeated, when the new Jerusalem is coming from heaven, God, in a very real sense, is restoring the fellowship that he had in the Garden of Eden, making it even greater than it originally was. In Revelation 21, verse 3, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This goes for both men and women. One of God's intended purposes in our creation, in the greater context of being created for the glory of God, was for fellowship with Him. And that fellowship can only be restored by believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All attempts at trying to be a man, a true man, ultimately fall short apart from Christ. It's not about rugged individualism or being independent or being strong and tough and courageous. It's about that relationship with Christ. It's about being saved by Christ. There is a very real sense in which a true man is a Christian. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 17, starting in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is a man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So what is a man without Christ? Cursed. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Cursed is the man who tries to be strong on his own, who decides to make his body strong. He works out, he's strong, he's fast, he eats right, he might even develop skills, whether for survival or becoming skilled in his occupation. He is the world's very definition of a man, and he's considered cursed. Why? Because his heart turns away from God. He is a shrub in the desert. He's isolated, he's dry, he's frail, he lacks sustenance, he lacks nourishment. Why? Because he's apart from God. For contrast, let's continue on to the next couple of verses. Verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. 
He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So if the man who turns away from God is cursed, dry, bereft of fruit, malnourished, is useless, he trusts in himself, what is the man who trusts in the Lord? Blessed. He's like a tree planted by water. He's nourished. He's healthy. He's not afraid when heat comes. The man who trusts in the Lord is truly strong. Why? Because God is his strength, not his own. If you want to be a real man then, trust in God. Trust in Christ. Not only will you then fulfill your purpose as a man, but your soul will be saved as well. So, number one, man was created to glorify God through a relationship with him. Number two, man was created to glorify God through work. Genesis says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Hebrew word for work means just that, to work, to toil, work hard. Sometimes it means to serve. Sometimes it means to serve God in worship. But here, one of the very things God had Adam do was work. Up in Genesis 2 verse 5, it says that there is no man to work the ground. So what did God do? God created Adam and gave him a job. I think a lot of us Christians think that when we get to heaven, we won't have to work anymore. But work existed in creation. I genuinely think that in heaven, we will have one job, and that will be to worship God. Work existed before death and taxes even existed. Unfortunately, work has been affected by sin as everything else has been. Work was cursed as a result of the fall. God said to Adam in Genesis 3 that by the sweat of your face now you shall eat bread. Which in the context doesn't mean that bread is difficult to eat, but that Adam will have to labor intensely just to get food. Adam will have to sweat to earn his daily bread, to borrow the words of Jesus. He will have to sweat just to take care of his basic needs. Because of this difficulty, we will be tempted to do work poorly. Whether that mean poorly in quality or not put in the effort that we should to do it immorally, unethically. There are serious temptations when it comes to work, but we are not supposed to do work that way. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. It does not matter what your particular job is, what your work is. You can be a father. You can be a pastor. You can work in construction. You can be a programmer or a doctor or VBS volunteer or a student. You can be a husband. Whatever it is that we are, whatever it is that we are doing, doing we do it as if god himself told us to do it we do it as if jesus was watching us do it why because it says you are serving the lord christ we are doing this for jesus jesus is watching us that means we work heartily the greek word there for heartily comes from the their word for soul you work with soul and this doesn't just mean that you work hard and you do quality work. It means you do it ethically, 
morally. If you're dealing with a client, you do it honestly. You're not going to lie about something. You treat your employers well. You treat your employees well. You're doing this for Christ. You're glorifying God through work. You're created to glorify God through the work that you're doing. You are serving the Lord Christ. So work knowing that. So man was created to glorify God, number one, through a relationship with him. Number two, through work. And I wasn't really sure how to label number three. So I'm just going to read Genesis 2.15 again, and I think you'll get it. So number three, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So number three, keeping. To help you give a better understanding of what keep means, we'll do a quick word study. The Hebrew word translated here as keep is shamar. It's used over 400 times in the Old Testament. It's most frequently translated by the ESV as keep, just like it is here in Genesis. It's also frequently translated as guard, care, observe, watch, even preserve. An example used in Genesis 4, Cain murders his brother Abel. God asks where his brother is, and Cain responds by saying, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Same Hebrew word keep in participle form. In Leviticus 18.4, God says, You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. Number 6.24, The Lord bless you and keep you. Deuteronomy 12.28, Be careful to obey all these words I command you. Genesis 3.24, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every which way to guard the way to the tree of life. Psalm 140, verse 4, Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men. Psalm 146, 9. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Psalm 97, 10. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 130. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning. Watchman there is still Shamar. So now maybe you get a broader sense from the, what the word might imply back here in Genesis 2.15. God put the man in the garden both to work in it and to watch over it, to guard it, to keep it. Now you might ask, why does it need watching over? Didn't God create everything good? In Genesis 3, we see the snake, which later in the Bible we learn was Satan, who deceives Adam's wife Eve. He lies, he speaks evil about God and tempts them to sin. There was a threat to the garden. There was a threat to Adam and to Eve. Satan was actively trying to destroy all the good that God created. And he kind of succeeded. In Genesis 3, when God's cursing the serpent, he says that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a verse that is considered to be the first gospel, referring to Jesus' death, wherein Satan kills Jesus, but is still defeated because of what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplish. Bruise here is sometimes translated as crush. shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Paul refers to this in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But in this prophecy back in Genesis 3, 
I think there is a sense that Jesus is going to do what Adam failed to do. Adam was supposed to keep the garden, watch over the garden. He was supposed to crush the snake. He was supposed to watch over the garden, watch over his wife. And then instead of crushing the snake, he stood by and watched while his wife, Eve, was manipulated by the devil. He just stood by and watched. He was supposed to preserve the garden, keep the garden, protect the garden, protect his wife. He just stood by and watched. God entrusted Adam with a very particular task of keeping the garden. And for us today, there are two implications we can draw from this. One, that we're to keep, to protect what God has entrusted to us. We are also supposed to protect those who cannot protect themselves. And when I say this, I'm not implying in any way that E was incapable and weak and pathetic and needed defending. What I am referring to, though, is a sentiment throughout Scripture that the poor and the needy are to be defended. In Proverbs 31.9, a king is exhorting his son to, quote, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. In Jeremiah 5.28, God is accusing wicked men among his people, and he accuses the men of not defending the rights of the needy. One of the ways that men glorify God are by watching over what God has given them and by watching over those who cannot defend themselves. I said earlier that being strong and being, I don't know, brave and courageous without Christ is worthless. But in Christ, there is still, even in Christ, there is still a place for that. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul exhorts the church to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Here you see Paul equating standing firm and being strong to acting like a man, but he also balances it out with love. It's really easy to see verses like this and to take the concept of being a protector as a call to be violent and combative, but that is not the case. We're not to be violent and combative. We're not supposed to go out looking for a fight. But all that we do is to be done in love, and sometimes that means standing firm. I think our best example for us in this area is Jesus in John chapter 10. Uh, I will just read it starting in verse 10. It says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus sees danger coming. He sees the wolf coming. And instead of running away, he lays down his life. He's not doing it for pride or for ego. He's doing it because he loves his sheep. He, he's not doing it to 
he's not even doing it to fulfill some sense of manhood. He's doing it because he loves the sheep. He's laying down his life. He note he, and he notes that the hired hand does not lay down his life for the sheep. He flees. That's just like Adam, isn't it? Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. And that is how we as men glorify God in our job as protector, as keeper. We lay down our lives for the sake of others, not for some sense of honor and glory or ego. We do it for others, not ourselves. So number one, we glorify God through relationship with him. Number two, we glorify God through work, working as unto the Lord, not for men. And we glorify God, number three, by being strong and laying down our lives when it comes to it. And I think at the most basic level, man was created to glorify God in these three categories. You could definitely subdivide these and put these into subcategories. For example, part of being in a relationship with God, having fellowship with God, is that you know his word. God speaks, you listen, you know the Bible, you know the scripture, you study it, you absorb it. Like God commanded Adam and he gave him a very specific set of instructions. God spoke to Adam probably regularly and Adam is supposed to know what God said. Another subcategory that might be of particular interest is the unselfish nature of God's purpose in creating man. Man's work isn't for himself, though he may definitely receive satisfaction from doing work and from serving the Lord. But it's not for himself. He was working in the garden. He was preserving the garden. He was keeping the garden. He lays down his life for others, not for himself. He protects others for their sake, not for his own. There's no hint of pride here. And man isn't even completely independent or invincible. In Genesis 2.18, God says it is not good that the man should be alone. Adam couldn't do it on his own. God created a helper for him. And today, this indicates to us that we need help too. We're not supposed to be these macho guys trying to take on the world by themselves. Whether the, that help comes from God in the form of a wife or a good friends, always our strength and our help comes from the Lord. talked earlier about our strength coming from God, from Christ being in us. It's not from ourselves. We're not invincible can't do this on our own and everyone who is trying to be what they think is a man and go it alone be the lone ranger sort of type he's not true man true man finds his strength in christ not himself but there are wiser more experienced men than me who have had a lot more to say about manhood than me the first several chapters of Proverbs is a father trying to teach his son. 
there's much wisdom to be gleaned from those chapters, even apart from the theme of biblical manhood. But I would encourage everyone, especially any of the men listening, to go and meditate on those. I hope I articulated well today the most bare-bone, essential elements of biblical manhood. And I hope it was beneficial to you all listening. I'd like to thank Jesse again for having me back on here. I'd like to thank you all for listening and putting up with me again. And I pray for us guys that we would grow in our relationship with the Lord, that we would not become proud in any in anything really, in any of our strengths or our skills, that we would become humble, that we would become close with God, that we would know his word, that we would work hard, that we would bring glory to God through what we do, and that we would find our strength in Christ and not ourselves, and thereby bring great honor and glory to God. Thank you for listening to Pickled Parables. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us, subscribe, and share with your friends. If you're interested in more things like this, check out our secondary podcast called My Dusty Bible. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. Parable is a volunteer organization and we would deeply appreciate your prayers. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you later.